I will trust Brexit Focus with Paul Goslin and Jared Dean. Okay, welcome along to the Hollywell Brexit Focus podcast. My name is Jared Dean, and as always, I'm joined by Paul Gosling. Paul, good to see you. Good afternoon. So, this is the ninth in our series looking at Brexit and the impact it might have on the Northwest. And this month, we're going to look at a number of different things. We're going to look at what's happening in Brexit in the last month, talk about how it's impacting on City of Derry Airport, what a no deal Brexit might look like. But we're also going to have a conversation with some EU funded groups some locally based organisations on how um, Brexit might impact on them. We're going to hear from the group Derry Gears Against Borders. And as always, don't forget, this is the ninth in our series, so we've got eight other episodes that are available to listen to and stream or download. Now, during our last episode, we met with and interviewed Jane Morris and Seamus Lehenny, and they were really interesting conversations. But first, Paul, take it on the Brexit and how it's impacting on us again this month. Uh, City of Derry Airport, that's the headlines. Well, it uh, is further bad news, I'm afraid, Gerard. Uh, I'm told that uh, the, the planned aircraft repair and maintenance centre that was to have been located at the City of Derry Airport will not now go ahead. Uh, and specifically, that's because the operators require the base to be located within the European Union. Now, I've made a number of inquiries about this to try and uh, be absolutely certain what's going on. Uh, I contacted Derry City and Straban Council. They told me they couldn't comment, and they referred me to the City of Derry Airport and also to Invest NI. I then contacted City of Derry Airport. They referred me to Invest NI and said that they couldn't comment. Uh, Invest NI told me that they could confirm there had been inquiries about a repair and maintenance operation, but they weren't prepared to talk to me in any detail about this. Uh, They did confirm that it's not being progressed, uh, and we do know that they had been acting on behalf of City of Derry Airport to get a repair and maintenance operation of aircraft at City of Derry Airport. So I think I can be absolutely confident in saying that is not going ahead, and apparently that is because of Brexit. Now, I did also contact the company that I understand was to have located the base there and they didn't come back to me. But what this does mean is if you take that along with the problems of the potential difficulty in renewing the the main flight operation with London Stansted, we do know that uh, the precarious situation of City Airport is getting worse. There are doubts about its future and this comes down to two things, one of which is Brexit and the other is the, the fact that we ha- don't have a government uh, present in Northern Ireland. Okay, there's a, a common theme to things. Brexit and the lack of government seem to be combining on a lot of things. And the other common theme here, Gerard, is what's happening in terms of investment in Northern Ireland. The AIB Bank, which is known here as First Trust Bank, has just uh, put out a, a, its own survey of what companies in Northern Ireland are doing in terms of their response to Brexit. Now, just about half of them, 49% of Northern Ireland businesses that had planned investment schemes have actually either postponed them or cancelled them specifically because of Brexit. So what we can see is a clear picture here that Brexit is already damaging the Northern Ireland economy because it is killing off investment. Today we've had more scary news, I think, in the announcement from the Department for Exit in the EU where we've had the first of 80 technical notes released about what a no-deal 
Brexit might look like or how it might impact and how we should prepare? Yeah, just a bit of context on this, Jared. I mean, the, the, the risk of a no-deal Brexit outcome has risen significantly in the last month. And, of course, regular listeners will be aware that we've been warning for the last two monthly podcasts that the no-deal Brexit was becoming more likely. Mm. Uh, the government's International Trade Secretary, Liam Fox, who's a strong supporter of Brexit, says there's now a 60% chance of no-deal. Uh, The Latvian foreign minister said that it would be 50-50 whether there's a deal or not. Uh, An opinion poll has suggested that more than half of the UK population no longer expects there to be a deal. Now, what uh, has happened in uh, today, the day of the Brexit, of the the podcast uh, being recorded, mm-hmm. is that Dominic Raab, the the Brexit secretary, says he does think, on balance, that a deal is still more likely than a no deal. However, the government is publishing. 80 technical notices. It's published 25 of these already, indicating what a no-deal outcome might mean. Now, we know bits and pieces on the back of this. They're not particularly helpful documents. But we do know, do know, for example, that it means that we will still be able to get medicines in, hopefully. Um, it does mean that uh, it will be more expensive to conduct transactions within the European Union afterwards because uh, currency costs uh, and expenditure costs will rise. Uh, And it's also worth mentioning that the Financial Times' own comment on this, it said the language in these reports is particularly vague in respect of how the UK would deal with the Irish border in the event of a no-deal situation. So basically, in terms of the border, we still don't know. Yeah, Uh, there seems to be the constant line of 80% is negotiated and then the 20% seem to be well, the, the Irish the, context. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the 80% represents the easy bits, the 20% <laughs> represents the bits which perhaps are impossible to deal with. And of course, there's politics behind this, Gerard. I mean, there's yeah. a, a lot of Conservative MPs that really would prefer that there wasn't a deal. I mean, we've had, for example, John Redwood, who's been campaigning to get out of the European Union uh, for decades, and he's saying, well, basically, if there is no deal, then we save the, what, about £40 billion worth of commitment of finance to the European Union, and we should spend that money ourselves rather than give that back to the European Union. And the Sunday Express has just reported last weekend that around 100 Conservative MPs, or up to 100 Conservative MPs, are willing to vote down their own government in order to reject any compromise with the European Commission. So within this context, the the, the politics are very difficult to get any deal across the line. And some of this, uh, Gerard, we will discuss with David Liddington, a senior cabinet minister who's visiting Derry, and he will be visiting the Hollywood Trust, and we have the opportunity uh, to discuss this with him, to ask him some difficult questions, and that will be broadcast as, you know, as a special podcast. Mm -hmm. Okay, and and even on the, the political situation, there's been opinion polls done that show that 100 seats, 100 seats that voted to leave in the last referendum, if there was a referendum now today, they would switch and they would vote remain. Yeah, the politics of this are very difficult because, as I say, the politics within the House of Commons are is very difficult to get a deal through. But the politics out in the country are showing a lot of people who voted for Brexit are no longer happy with that and would prefer to stay within the European Union. But whether that means there will be either a second referendum or an additional referendum to actually consider the actual deal, well, probably there won't be. It's possible, but it's probably there won't be. But there is, you know, campaigners who are trying to to push that. One of the leading ones, though, is Andrew Adonis, who's a former mm. Labour government minister who himself is coming today in the next few days. 
a constantly changing environment when it comes to the, the, the politics of the stuff as well. And another element of those politics, uh, Gerard, is, is what's happening in terms of the, the House of Commons and uh, Parliament, uh, because they are putting through a new security bill. Um, mm. And unless that's amended, when that becomes an act of Parliament, that will create, under the proposals that are currently being considered, a new stop and search power so that uh, any public transport goes across the border or anyone walking or driving within a mile of the border could be stopped for no reason and checked about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Okay, could have significant impacts for this area. Paul, thank you very much for that update. We're about to be joined by three people representing EU-funded projects. John Pito from the Nerve Centre, Maureen Hetherington from The Junction and Elaine Ford from The Playhouse. The Highwell Podcast Brexit Focus, funded by the Community Foundation of Northern Ireland's Brexit Dialogue Fund. Download this programme and stream it for free on soundcloud.com, Apple Podcasts and stitcher.com. Subscribe, listen, share and enjoy. Both myself and Paul have a wee bit of conflict of interest. They stayed here before we go any further with the questions whenever we come to EU funding. Through Hollywell Trust, we have contracts, EU-funded contracts they deliver, particularly through the local peace programme, um, the Strabane Shared Space one springs to mind. And we're also working, delighted to be working in partnership with the Playhouse on the Theatre Peace Building Academy project. And Paul, you're the chair of the Playhouse as I well. Am. That's correct. <laughs> okay, so now that all that's out of the way, we're delighted to be joined by some EU-funded guests. We have John Pedo from the Nerve Centre. Yes, John. How's Jared? How are you? Dead on. Maureen Hetherington from The Junction. Hello, Jared. And Elaine Ford from The Playhouse. Hi, Jared. Turn to yourself, John, first. John, do you want to tell us about the EU-funded projects that the Nerve Centre is involved in at the moment? Yeah, um, the Nerve Centre's got a, just about a 25-year record of involvement in EU projects, mm. um, predating even the peace programme. We, we've had transnational projects under um, Minerva, which is now Erasmus, and the mm. Convict programme, bringing young people from different parts of Europe to Derry and back again. And then um, we've continued those programmes, working through the Creative Europe programme. We have two new Creative Europe programmes about to get underway around film education and film production skills for young people, which okay. bring partners from Poland, the Balkans and um, France into Northern Ireland to work on um, filmmaking skills projects and a teacher training project around that. And then we have the peace programs that we've run really since the beginning of Peace One. We've always had a a live peace program underway, starting with um, digital ways of exploring conflict identity here, the Symbols series of CD-ROMs, the Virtual Museum of Column Kill, trying to get young people interested into some of the contentious and divided histories that we've had here, Mm. which then grew into the Teaching Divided Histories program, which was training teachers across Northern Ireland the Middle East, Lebanon, South Africa and Sierra Leone and how to deal with conflict issues within the classroom and and create new curriculum and curriculum materials for that. And now we have a a current project um, under PEACE which is around digital heritage and giving people digital skills to try and interrogate the past um, and represent and repackage the past to learn from some of our misrepresentations and the sort of skewed understandings and stereotypes and mythologies that we have around the past Mm. to give people the power to shape their own narratives and hopefully sort of develop more shared views of the future as well. In addition to that, we also, under the last Peace Programme, funded our Fab Lab. So we bought the first Fab Labs, a project from MIT and yeah. um, Boston, around digital fabrication and skills for employability for young people, old people, and anybody in between, um, which rolls out right across Northern Ireland. Hmm. 
Uh, Where's my buddy doing? Like? <laughs> That's amazing work. Maureen, do you want to give us a, a bit of an understanding of what the junction's involved with at the minute? Yeah, well, as you know, the junction is a community relations resource and peace building initiative. And again, like John, we have been involved with the peace monies uh, since the outset and the junction itself has been going on for many, many years. I suppose for me, we both are involved with local uh, Peace 4 uh, and also the regional Peace 4. Uh, the local one is Liberation from Patriarchy for Gender Justice and uh, the regional one is a partnership with uh, Life Start Foundation, which is an all-Ireland project. Both of them are very important, both at the local, regional and international level. And we are also involved in other initiatives where we're brought in to deliver programmes mm-hmm. and that's ongoing current work at the moment. And Elaine, do you want to give us a, a sense of what the Playhouse is involved in? The Playhouse is an arts organisation based in Derry, Londonderry. And I guess we've got three main aims in, in our programming. So one is to commission new theatre, the second is an educational component, and the third is peace building. So I've worked in the Playhouse for 12 years, eight years of that time I have worked for Peace 2, Peace 3 and now Peace 4 funded programmes. And our current Peace 4 funded project is called Theatre and Peace Building Academy. And with that, we, we gained 849000 from Peace 4 to deliver a two and a half year project. And we will bring, during that time, we'll bring four national, international artists to work with areas um, and communities and individuals in Northern Ireland and the border regencies to use theatre as a tool to explore peace, to explore conflict, to explore the past, to look at truth recovery and to heal communities, bring communities together. During that process, those international, national artists will also mentor and teach and work with local artists to enable them Mm -hmm. to create and make significant pieces of work which we which will aid the peace process the situation at present is that uh, the european commission and the uk government have jointly said uh, that uh, the intention is after brexit that there's a peace plus that continues the work of peace one two three and four but if there's a no deal outcome there's got obviously to be a strong possibility that there will not be a peace plus and there will be no more EU funding. Perhaps each of you could tell us, perhaps starting with Maureen, what that would mean in terms of your organisation's ability to continue your work if there was no continued e-funding to your project. You know, as John Paul Lederach, who's a well-known peace theorist, and that would say, if you've been involved in 40 years of conflict, it takes 40 years to actually come out of it. Uh, We are a work in progress. There are many steps forward, but as many steps backwards, particularly when you don't have a, a government at the moment, which has serious implications for us here at the local level. I suppose without the peace funding, everything is in a short term contractual basis whereas you need to know that the work the, the work that you start to do uh, has to go along a continuum and that's about continuously um, revising reflecting and then working forward and you can see the results of that but it, you can fairly quickly disintegrate if you don't have that work continuously at the grassroots level so I think that if there is a no uh, no deal it would have serious implications for the grassroots work 
at the community level uh, and it is indeed at the community level that the piece is being held together so if we didn't have the funding we can't roll out our training programs we can't keep that education at the grassroots level about you know to change minds and attitudes to you know change the um, generational impact of the conflict as well which is very much present and we're already seeing on the streets a return to some of the violence so to stop the peace monies means the majority of community work and community relations work at the grassroots is so dependent on that type of funding because, again, it's not coming from elsewhere. Serious implications, yes. And, of course, that's a very important point you touched on there, that without an executive in place in Northern Ireland, if anyone has the assumption that somehow peace money and other EU funding will be replaced by the uh, the government here, or clearly there isn't a government here to replace the money, and then in a case they wouldn't be able to replace that much of funding because most of the funding actually comes from the EU rather than from the devolved administrations. I mean, Sean, what would uh, it mean for the nerve centre if you didn't have renewed EU funding? Yeah, I mean, I think Maureen's covered the, 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 the sort of coalface peace-building dimensions of it, but for us... European money, not just peace money, but peace money too, um, although it's caught up in a lot of bureaucracy, it's actually enabled us to be far more innovative than we've been able to be with central government funding. And we've been able to, to pilot programs and develop projects which we would not otherwise have got funded. So the, the Teach and Divided Histories project that we um, pioneered under Peace 4 was dealing with very hard issues around conflict and bringing them directly into the classroom. And I, I don't think we would have got funding from the executive office as, as is now, the Northern Ireland office, or, or any of the sort of um, involved vested interests to get that project off the ground. It needed peace money to get it off the ground. And actually the innovation that that has unlocked is now led to a program which is delivered across the world and is supporting jobs within the city. The same with the Fab Lab, um, you know, a, a left-field concept that was building, bringing 3D printing to people that... Um, had low levels of literacy and numeracy, and you know, how can they do, deal with these advanced technologies? Well, actually, the model shows that you can. The Fab Lab now supports three jobs within the Nerve Centre, supports two jobs in a second Fab Lab, and based out in Northside for the Greater Chantelo Area Partnership. And these these kind of social impacts and social benefits, beyond the, the, the sort of coalface peace benefits, creating jobs, creating economic benefit and economic sustainability in a city which definitely drastically needs that kind of impetus and input, I'd be very fearful that that'll be gone and if you try and come to, to central government, if we do ever get an executive up and running again with ideas that are, that are more forward-thinking and more creative, they're very much focused. It's an outcomes-based approach which we're taking in government. If you can't deliver outcome one, two, three, then you're not going to be funded to do it. And actually, when I talk about innovation, the story of the Nerve Centre, the Nerve Centre now employs almost 50 people um, across four sites, um, including in Belfast as well. And that was a group of young people that needed someone to take a chance to buy them some guitars and some amps um, 30 years ago. And that's the, you know, someone that took a risk and said, well, we'll give you these knowing that there's not going to be any concrete financial outcome. There's not going to be an employability outcome out of this. But actually, you know, 30 years later, you've become an economic entity, never mind an artistic and cultural entity. And I think that's the kind of innovation and risk taking that European funding has supported to an extent. I wish it had done more of it, but isn't there within central government. And that's where I'm really fearful about the end of, of European funding. And Elaine, what would it mean to the Playhouse if we didn't get renewed funding? Three main issues, I think. Firstly, as Maureen highlighted, just the impact in terms of 
peace building, a huge amount of our work is working with communities to tell stories, to tell forgotten stories, unheard stories. During Peace 2, we created a project, Peace 2 and Peace 3, a project called Theatre of Witness. And that still continues as a model of practice where we've worked with um, security forces, ex-combatants, victim survivors, and enabled those traumatised people to come on stage and tell their very personal story. They, they now are peacemakers. They are going around Northern Ireland, the border counties, using their stories to um, in training educational processes workshops um, so we want to continue working with people at grassroots levels enable, enabling them to tell their story that will empower their life and make a difference in their life but also hopefully empower and change other people's lives so that that would be one issue for us um, the second issue I guess for us um, would be immigration that since the Playhouse was founded in 1992 we have ensured that we have brought international artists to work with us, to work in Northern Ireland and the border counties, mainly through Peace 2, Peace 3, now Peace 4 and that could have a huge consequences for the work that we do the relationships we build um, we have brought, I mentioned a moment ago Theatre of Witness, we brought Tess Epinick from America, she worked with us for um, three, four year period um, and she came and based herself in Northern Ireland. Other artists come for a shorter period of time, we offer them a certificate of sponsorship They that enables them to get a visa um, and uh, an artist that I worked in my last project, ICAM, funded through Peace 3, International Culture Arts Network, we brought a Syrian artist over just as the, the Syrian conflict was beginning and he got a visa no problem and he, he now lives in Germany but recently he hasn't been able to get a visa to go to Tate Modern to do an event there. So, and of course we hear these conversations from WOMAD and we hear them from Edinburgh Book Festival but they're very serious issues for the arts going forward um, and I guess as John highlighted um, the impact financially to the Playhouse and also to the local economy in terms of supporting artists, the amount of artists that we support and designers to make, create um, and also the the um, impact to the local the local economy. So I think those would be the main three issues that it would impact directly in the Playhouse. Now all three of you have stressed in fact that uh, it's not simply that you risk losing money if there's no new peace programme or other EU funding programmes but also the fact that EU funding does things which are different from government funding either from the UK or Northern Ireland because in John's case it's about funding innovation as well as cementing peace. Now I suppose for all three of you the issue is whether there would be any prospect, any optimism amongst you as to whether there would be the possibility of getting central government funding to do peace work because Maureen it doesn't feel to me as if very much money has come from governmental institutions either UK level or Northern Ireland level to support the you know dealing with the legacy of the troubles. The truth is that as somebody who works at the local level and we receive a a small amount of core funding support uh, the difficulty arises whenever you've got an executive when it was an operation trying to put a square peg into a round hole given that their strategies are very, very difficult to manage and negotiate and try to do the work at the grassroots so they don't really reflect what's actually happening at the grassroots and the funding is drying up and that happens on a yearly basis. There is a whole culling of the community centre. The sections of the community are eroded. Uh, People leave 
to get jobs that have more stability. So you, you're constantly losing skills, you're losing expertise. A lot of the work in the peace building from all of us is about training and it's about leaving a legacy. It's about training trainers. It's about working really hard to develop skills so that there's something left there. But unfortunately, at the moment, I don't see that there's any vision and there's certainly no executive to help us, nor from central government either. I think another sort of key factor in that funding question is that Nobody has clean hands here in Northern Ireland, but the European Union is is less invested in the conflict than the British government, any of the political parties of Northern Ireland or the Southern government. So funding that was coming from them, you had a, a that's why I was saying you know they they would allow you to do things that possibly were politically um, unpopular with certain sectors of, of government um, in on these islands, and with that gone, I would worry. You know, there's always been small parts of money and occasionally large parts of money from America that have come in to fill some of that gap, but actually. The peace program was a sustained program that's that's built over years and years. Didn't rely on you wooing a particular funder and hoping that, that you might get a three-year program out of them. And you've been able to do work that's built and built and built and, and grown and developed. And I think when that goes, it, it will be an issue. Just on that, John, I'll start with yourself first. What would Peace Plus look like? And this is based on the assumption that there will be a Peace Plus and that there will be. I think there's the intention to support peace here from the EU, no matter what else. Because that's one of their core things anyway. Um, but how best could it, or what should it look like? If What would help you? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I I would sort of challenge the assumption that there will be a Peace Plus as well. I, I'm, I'm trying to put a positive <laughs> spin on stuff here. <laughs> Michelle Barney, I came here and stood in the Guildhall and said yeah. there will be Peace Plus, there will be indirect programmes continuing. Yeah. But he, he he doesn't have the, the remit to say that, you know. Um, although he's possibly the most influential person within the negotiations on mm. the EU side, as Paul says, if we end up with a, no a, deal a, deal bre- a hard Brexit, a no-deal Brexit, all bets are off as to, to yeah. what will be there and how that could how that could happen. I think essentially um, any program that would come afterwards will always require that UK Irish dimension, London Dublin dimension around sort of oversight and steering of the of the project and the mm. program. But I think the direction of travel of the peace program as it's gone from peace one to peace five, peace four, um, has always been focusing far more on economic. Um, regeneration and stability and those programs that deal with the sort of hard issues around community relations have tended more and more to be devolved around down to the local council projects that have been administered i suspect that direction of travel will continue and the sort of trend that's been there where european money is often although technically illegally and not supposed to be used as a substitute for central government money i think that will probably be some form of any peace plus program yeah what about yourself maureen what would be the ideal ideally you'd like to be funded by your own executive uh to, that they take you seriously that you help to inform policy that you help to inform strategies um that it has to be long-term thinking and that's short-term contractual work where you're constantly looking to find for the balance of monies that you would need to actually do the work. Mm. And the elephant in the room is the lack of integrated education. So we constantly receive money to help out in the schools, but the big elephant in the room is that, well, we don't have that. And if you don't have a government or an executive that's taken peace-building seriously, 
because it's difficult for them whenever they they get in based on sectarian voting. You know, we we absolutely need that, you know, that distant voice looking in, giving us like a five-year strategy that you can actually plan instead of doing things over a year, two years, whatever. Mm -hmm. You absolutely need a minimum of five years in which to implement strategies that where you can see clear outcomes over a sustainable period of time. So if there was money, and it has to be serious money, it has to be more long-term thinking rather than short-term uh, filling the gaps. Okay. And Elaine, you? Um, gosh, similar to Mooring and John, um, I think peace money creates um, a neutral catalyst to enable us to work in Northern Ireland and the border counties and to deal with very difficult issues with different communities. Long-term thinking um, and to have various parties sign up to that long-term thinking would be amazing. I think we de- we need to really, as, as, a, as a community, as a Northern Ireland country, we need to look at segregation, we need to look at segregated housing, segregated schooling, and look look with our with with both governments at how we can change that and how we can really really begin to tackle those that infrastructure that's been created which is causing huge issues between communities um, and I guess I think as well about some of the events that we have ongoing each year some of the commemorations that as as gorgeous as it is that communities can ce- can celebrate their background and their history and their culture create huge issues within the peace building process so I'd like us to, to come together and think about that and to think about that with that neutral funder funding and then lastly I guess I think about all of the international issues that impact on Northern Ireland and impact on communities of Northern Ireland but we don't necessarily address racism Polish communities living in Northern Ireland African communities living what are we doing to address that so we should be addressing all of these sort of international, national issues and be dealing with those three piece plus. Now, whatever happens from here on, it looks inevitable that Brexit will happen in March. So, John, what's your organisation doing in terms of planning for Brexit and what outcome would you like to see from Brexit? Yeah, I mean, I guess at the most selfish level, the outcome we'd like to see for Brexit would be some kind of special status for Northern Ireland that it doesn't affect us. But, you know, while accepting that that's completely selfish and doesn't solve the problems of the rest of the UK who are facing similar issues. Um, and in terms of our kind of mitigation, what we're trying to do to alleviate the potential impacts, we're looking at all sorts of, of different ideas. We've been lucky and, you know, um, our core business isn't European funded. But like I say, the core business of today in many instances in the nerve centre was European funded 10 years ago and we took that innovation and we've been able to then mainstream and make that core afterwards. So, and that's the ideal outcome, isn't it? Yes, really? which is what everybody should be aspiring to. And um, so we'd be sort of concerned about where that innovation is going to come from. But we're, we're involved in a, a large cross-border organisation around the Fab Lab programme so called Fab Foundation Ireland. And part so of, would you move some of your activities across the border then? Well, we, that, that is a cross-border entity that, that, that we are part of the the running and management of so um that gives us a, a cross-border um base where we can apply for funding and part of the model for that would be we might be providing services to organizations in the south which are actually employing people in Derry in the northwest but the the, the work is done in the south and the, and the funding comes from 
Europe um, to, to, to deliver that work. We have a range of cross-border partners. We're, we're not at this stage looking at relocating across the border. And I think the key problem that I really can't stress enough, I, I think I'm sure we all share, is just the uncertainty because nobody knows actually what's going to happen. What, what was going to happen last week, never mind last month, is now not going to happen. And it, it's constantly shifting. It's clear as um, the nose on your face. There is no plan. There is no grand strategy. And it's everything is being made up as we go along. So it's very difficult to try and plan long term around that. We are looking at how we can do more work from a southern base if we were to require European funding from that. But we're not looking at relocating the nerve centre. And it's really to see, see how we go. And for the junction, I mean, what's your preferred outcome and what are you doing to plan for the worst? Given the ongoing erosion of core funding anyway, we've had to move towards consultancy and training and uh, contracting out services, developing our services, developing our training resources uh, and offering out what we can, you know, what we've learnt down through the years and what expertise that we've built up and also building, you know, associate consultants so that we can uh, meet the needs of organisations around Northern Ireland, the border counties, but we also have a wider remit in the south as well. Um, We have strong links with the international community and again it's about you know, with the peace funding, it was the opportunity to share and learn a lot about what other countries were doing, but also um, share what we have learned. Uh, and I suppose that's one of the fears that we don't get that opportunity to share at the moment um, because we're under the peace funding. It gives you the opportunity to share at the more international level. So it is about moving down the road to consultancy, selling out services. But that the detrimental fact is that you can't do a lot of the, the good work that you want to do at that grassroots level and you don't have the funding to do some of that very important work. And what do you hope will be achieved out of Brexit? I hope that it's a good deal. Um, I hope that uh, coming towards it, um, there is a big change of minds and attitude that there's a second referendum and people actually get to make an informed choice and make a decision. So I'm going to be hopeful to the end, Paul. My glass is always half full as long as it's wine. And <laughs> Elaine, uh, what, what's uh, firstly, what's the Playhouse doing to prepare for a bad outcome? And secondly, what outcome would you hope for? Um, so firstly, in terms of our preparation, um, we work significantly cross-border. And for us, those relationships that we've created, we can maintain. Um, so we're looking at ways of how we can... Well, we don't know what, what the outcome will be. So we're trying to look at ways of t- ensuring that. And secondly, peace has been a huge funder for the Playhouse. So we are looking at di- different ways of generating income through different forms of different streams of, of funding and different types of activities that we can do. But that will impact on the, on the peace work that we do. Best outcome for us is, I guess, a cross-border relationship where there's cooperation. In an ideal world, if Brexit is going to go ahead, we assume, um, that there is a, a visa passport for cultural workers so they can move around the world so that people aren't being stopped around the world. So those would be the most, I think, critical things for us. John, Maureen, Elaine, yeah. thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Very Thank you useful so conversation. Thank you all. Do you have a burning question or query regarding Brexit? Then contact us via email at brexit at hollywelltrust.com or tweet us at hollywellt or leave us a message on our Facebook page and Paul will try and address that issue in a future episode. So thank you to John, 
Maureen and Elaine for their thoughts and opinions on Brexit. Um, Paul, what do you think? Two main issues came to my mind, one of which was that the organisations are very dependent on peace, but not just that, but the fact that the peace programmes have done things that central government funding would never have done. They've allowed organisations to do things in particular relating to the legacy of the troubles that otherwise they simply wouldn't have done and there would no not be any central government funding available to them. The other thing is that there's a lot of innovation that's happened. So we've been able to move things forward, create new organisations off the back of European Union funding. And if that wasn't around, a lot of the things that are really important to our society just wouldn't be happening. Uh, We're now joined by Maeve Connolly from Derry Girls Against Borders. Maeve, welcome to the studio. Tell us, what is Derry Girls Against Borders? Dairy Girls Against Borders is a pressure group. We are, well, we have a committee. There's four of us met initially and then we we kind of formed a committee and we want to make a noise about um, the potential reinstating of hard borders as a result of Brexit. We want to be heard by the the governments in London and Brussels and, uh, and Dublin because we feel that this is something that could really affect our way of life and we want to make as much noise as possible and raise as much awareness as possible before the, the summit in October. So that's that's really what we're about. Now, you had a launch event on Monday, 20th of August. Yes. So tell us a bit about what happened there. Um, well, first of all, we had um, a panel on the stage. Um, we had a, a, a girl called Mary uh, who introduced the event. And then Tanya McCanfell, um she's the kind of founder member. She explained what the, the petition is and the wording of the petition, which is what we're um, we're trying to get a, a petition signed with thousands of signatures, which we'll then present to the governments I talked about earlier. And then we had three kind of testimonies from three different people who feel that they are really directly affected by the threat of hard borders. Um, uh, one lady was Mary Lindsay, who's the principal of St Mary's College in the Craigan, but she lives in uh, Ishkaheen. She considers herself both a Donegal woman and a Derry woman. We then spoke to Aoife Doherty, from, who owns Sass and Halo, which is a, a business, a kind of a fashion business. Um, and then a man called Paul, Paul Scream, Screamy or something. I uh, can't remember his surname exactly, but um, he is an English guy. So he's the kind of the wee English fella. And keeping with the show, and he um, is married to a dairy girl, but travels over to England once or twice a week with his work. So they all spoke really about their um, their experiences. You know, like anything, when you have kind of anecdotal stories from the heart that are really about people's lives, that we thought was the real selling point of the evening. Um, so their stories were were very, very kind of effective and affecting. And then after that, we invited different people to come in and, and talk to us on camera with different stories, um, all age groups, all, you know, all types of different people from all different walks of life. Um, we got people signing the p- petition and that's really what happened on Monday. There was a great, great atmosphere, great attendance. About 300 people were there and the media were there and it felt like a very positive and vibrant and enthusiastic kind of start to the whole campaign. And where does it go to now? Um, well, where where it is now is we've got a lot of press interest um, and the petition is live. So we launched it on Monday night. And is that available online? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dairy Girls Against Borders. It's on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. 
um, or you can go to the change.org website and see it there as well. And we're really just encouraging as many people as possible to sign it and share it. It's not a political campaign. It's it's very much a people's campaign, a civic campaign. Um, we may have a few other things that we might um, try and push for, but we'll see how the petition goes. Uh, a girl, a dairy girl has written a song called Dairy Girls Against Borders and she wants to get that recorded um, and videoed on different parts like the Gap coffee shop, maybe Fawn Beach, some of the little back border roads, just, you know, just to give it a bit more um, impetus. Okay, well, keep us informed, please. And we'll do what we can to uh, keep listeners informed. Maeve Connolly, Dairy Girls Against Borders, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. The Highwell Trust podcast presents Brexit Focus. As we draw near to the UK's exit from the European Union, Paul Goslin brings monthly updates on the negotiating processes, how Brexit is affecting us in the North West, whilst attempting to take away some of the fear and uncertainty from the issue on the local community. Hollywell Trust Brexit Focus podcast, released on the 25th of every month. Catch up on past episodes for free on our SoundCloud page, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher.com. Search Hollywell Podcast. Thank you for listening to this month's podcast and thanks to all who took part this month. Thanks to Elaine, Maureen, John and Maeve and of course to Paul and to D Kern for production support. Remember, feel free to get in touch if you have any questions or concerns that you'd like Paul to look into as our Brexit expert. You can contact us on brexit at hollywelltrust.com. Keep an eye out or an ear out too for our special interview with David Lennington MP that will be going out shortly after the release of this podcast. Keep an eye out as well for Paul's Brexit blog that will appear in the Derry Journal paper and website and Hollywell social media channels. So thank you to our funders uh, of this podcast the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland and to Hollywell Trust core funders, the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland and Derry City and Strabane District Council and our programme funders, the Ireland Funds and the Department for Foreign Affairs. Talk to you again soon. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages on Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust and on Twitter, it's at Hollywell T.